Today is April 7th, 2021. Biden sets out to rewrite Title IX rules. The MLB moves its all-star game out of Atlanta, causing debate on both sides of the aisle. And a vaccine passport raises concerns on the right. Welcome back, Split the Difference friends and Split the Difference family. It has been a while since we've been able to get together on one of our regular episodes since last Friday, although we did roll out one of the best podcasts that we have done so far just yesterday with our guest episode starring Stinson Rogers. If y'all have not listened to it, please go and give it a listen because it was a ton of fun. We had a great conversation about a wide gambit of different issues and concerns in modern politics and in America today. Got to hear a little bit about Stinson's life, and it was really, really great conversation that I think many of you will enjoy. Uh, as always, y'all, you know what we're doing here. We're doing our best to look on both sides of the aisle and, of course, try to parse through a lot of the differences and find some middle ground where we can to split the difference and find that sweet, sweet truth right there in between. So without further ado, let's go ahead and hop on into our first story of the day. Story number one. So for our first story of the day, Biden sets out to rewrite some of the rules and guidance coming down from the federal level around Title IX. So on Tuesday, the Biden administration announced a hearing to talk through changes to Title IX that will be held live and in person with an option to call in and have people enter in the hearing remotely. The hearing is described by NBC News as a chance for students, parents, school officials, and advocates to weigh in before the Biden administration offers its proposal for how K-12 schools and colleges receive public funding that must respond to allegations of sexual assault and harassment. They haven't formally announced when the hearing will be, but it is planning. the plan right now is for it to take place over a couple of days and have a wide variety of different voices present. Um, once the hearing is done, they will then begin the formal, quote, rulemaking process to rewrite some of the Title IX rules and guidance that are given by the federal government to help educational institutions that are funded by the education department uh, and how they deal with various problems of sexual harassment, sexual assault, uh, discrimination, sex discrimination uh, there on students uh, that are currently at the schools. Uh, they're also planning on sending out a question and answer, a little Q&A guidance on how public schools should read the current rules, uh, which were put in place by the Trump administration last August. So the Trump administration, along with Education Secretary Betsy DeVos, or Betsy DeVos, as some people pronounce it, uh, set out to rewrite the regulation last year with the express intent of trying to offer clearer, this is their words, clearer or fairer processes to adjudicate sexual assault claims. In doing so, many victims' rights groups across the country, primarily on the left, argued that it narrowed the definition of sexual assault and basically limited incidents that schools were allowed to go in and investigate. Uh, Biden, in his campaign, vowed to make changes to the Title IX rules and guidance uh, based upon advocacy from these various groups because many on the left said that this was a terrible rewriting of these rules and guidelines and that Biden needed to come in and basically rewrite them and kind of restructure them to look a lot like what uh, Obama had rewritten a lot of. We'll get into that a bit uh, a little bit later in the story, but 
to kind of get them back to the Obama era type of rules and guidelines around Title IX. So first, what is Title IX? That's the first question that we have to answer here. I feel like this legislation gets talked about a good bit. You hear it tossed around, especially in, by political pundits and different people in politics. Uh, and there's a bunch of strong, strong feelings on both sides of the aisle, as with most things. But if you ask a lot of people what Title IX actually is or what it does, they have absolutely no idea. So... Title IX is a federal civil, civil rights law passed as a part of the Education Amendments of 1972. And the law set out with the explicit aim to protect people from discrimination based upon sex in education programs or activities that receive federal financial assistance. So Title IX states, quote, no person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. So the idea behind Title IX was to basically help bridge the gap between men and women in public education with the hope of ending discrimination against women in a wide variety of different areas in education. It only applies to institutions that receive federal aid from the education department at the federal level, which can go all the way down to schools at the municipal level as well. Think any public elementary school, middle school, high school, or upper education as as well if it's a public university. So its purpose was to end sex discrimination, okay? However, as many of you know, uh, things have changed a lot since 1972, and Title IX has been used much more recently uh, to touch a lot of other different subjects that aren't simply based upon sex discrimination, like whether or not uh, transgender students are should be included in sports, okay? Or what the scope of Title IX is in regards to sexual harassment on campus. Um, because the language in Title IX is incredibly broad. It can be interpreted in a lot of different ways. So each administration basically comes in and rewrites how the legislation should be understood and enforced in order to be able to give proper, that's where you hear the rules and guidelines for, you know, education, educational institutions to be able to enforce Title IX properly. So many have actually, I think, seen this law uh, and, and and how it affects sports primarily. Uh, however, in the original law, there actually wasn't any language around sports at all. So if you talk to most people about Title IX, they're going to talk about, you know, the differences between men, men and women's sports and how Title IX has affected uh, athletics at a lot of different universities or a lot of different high schools or middle schools or whatever. But that wasn't the primary goal of Title IX when it was written. It just is kind of how Title IX was used for uh, you know a couple of decades up until the early 2000s and, and still today as well. Um, but you know now the the way that Title IX is being used is actually being shifted a little bit now as well. So what does the left have to say about it? So the left was very very against the changes. Uh, that were made by the Trump administration because they believed that it allowed for women to be sexually harassed on campuses and in high schools and middle schools uh, with in impunity for the most part. So many on the left argued that by limiting the incidents that schools could investigate and the narrowing of the definition of sexual harassment, which Bet uh, Betsy DeVos 
uh, put forth. Uh, there were many women that were going to be at the hands of people that could or would take advantage of them and basically have having repercussions for the offenders uh, would be much more difficult to actually implement. They believe that Title IX should be used to defend the rights and privacy of women and transgender students as well. And I think that's where a lot of the really big sticking point is uh, for the right, which we'll get into. Uh, but to basically defend the rights and privacy of women and transgender students from any sort of discrimination at all. Um, it should also be pointed out here that uh, there were several, several cases in the 1980s and 1990s that got all the way up to the Supreme Court level that kind of dealt with sexual uh, harassment and sexual assault. Uh, and the Supreme Court basically gave uh, a pretty clear jurisprudence around sexual harassment being sex discrimination. So if there is any sort of sexual harassment that takes place, it is actually considered a case of sex discrimination. So this is how sexual harassment has kind of been umbrellaed and put underneath Title IX uh, in regards to education and students that go to educational institutions. So as a result, the left believes that because Title IX speaks to sex discrimination in public education, it should outline how sexual assault and uh, you know sexual harassment should be dealt with at institutions that educate. So Obama went through uh, in 2011 and made some very large changes to the federal rules and guidance on Title IX. These were called his uh, "Dear Colleagues" letters that he was that he wrote. Um, it was you know very very. Uh, popular on the left, not very popular on the right. Uh, and it gave basically clear indication that LGBT students were included in protections under title nine. Uh, and you know, Trump, the Trump administration rolled a good bit of that back. So what does the right have to say? So the right overall is very cautious about the federal government wading into these types of waters. Uh, and I want to be clear here. The right is not against the protections of women in education at all. That is not a talking point on the right. Okay. Most of the reticence comes from guidance around LGBT students. Okay. So many on the right view guidance around this issue as one that excludes the wants and of parents uh, from the educational process and what goes on uh, at these institutions. And in some cases actually hurts the rights of women's, women. So for example, the allowing of transgender girls uh, into, which would be a, 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 a biological male that is transitioned to a female, um, as uh, basically being detrimental to women's sports. Many on the right view this as a direct assault on women's rights because uh, biologically, uh, if someone is born a male, they will oftentimes uh, have physically uh, major differences from girls that were born biologically as a girl. Uh, a, lot on the, a lot of people on the right also worry that guidance around sexual harassment gives the governing body at schools too much power in investigating incidents of sexual harassment or insult. Uh, and the repercussions uh, of, of these can be incredibly extreme. So you oftentimes see points on the right uh, of them, you know, kind of showing cases of false accusations that have gotten boys uh, removed from school without any possibility of pleading their cases at all before any type of school governing body or very, very little opportunity to plead their cases. Uh, and because these don't actually take place in a courtroom, right? Like oftentimes these cases of sexual harassment uh, aren't actually done through any, uh, done through the law of any type at all. Uh, the regular scrutiny of the law doesn't apply 
apply, and thus schools and administrators can take action as they see fit, and oftentimes based upon the guidance that the Department of Education sends down from up top. So, uh, I recognize that there are many cases here that have a ton of gray area in it, uh, and many of them are incredibly difficult to parse all the way through. There's a lot of nuance to these conversations. Uh, and wherever there's any type of sex discrimination or sexual harassment or sexual assault, it's a problem, right? Every Both sides of the aisle agree with that completely. Um, having legislation in place that protects people from discrimination is also important, and both sides also agree on that as well. Um, Women and girls need to feel safe and protected in any type of educational institution. Both sides agree on that. I think a lot of the nuance comes down to how exactly those guidelines are applied and what it actually means to protect from sex discrimination at the educational level. And then what is the role and the job of the school to actually come in and kind of deliver the law on that, right? Uh, should it act should cases of sexual harassment and sexual assault actually be dealt with by the law or should it be dealt with by the educational institutions? And I think that that's what uh, a lot of Title IX debate kind of hinges on and kind of revolves around, if you will. So, with all of that, that is the end of our first story of the day. Let's go ahead and hop on into our second story, story number two. So for our second story of the day, Major League Baseball moves its All-Star game. So the uh, MLB announced it was going to be taking its, its, its All-Star game this coming July out of Atlanta, Georgia, and moving it to Denver, Colorado. Okay, this is in protest, directly in, in protest of the new Georgia voting laws that were just signed, legislation that was just signed into law a couple weeks ago. Uh, the left is cheering this move. The right is not, and the right is not backing down at all. So let's go ahead and hop in real quick. This is Good Morning America doing some reporting on this uh, just a day or so ago. Now to the fallout over Major League Baseball's decision to pull the All-Star Game and the draft out of Georgia after that state's approval of a new voting law. The state's governor blasting baseball's decision and vowing not to back down. Steve Osinsami has the latest. Uh-oh. Darno left field. Major League Baseball is not alone. This morning, executives from Dow, PayPal, Uber, Lyft, Estee Lauder, Under Armour, and more are all sending a message to Republicans in state houses across the country. They've all signed on to a statement calling on lawmakers to make it easy for Americans to vote, writing, our elections are not improved when lawmakers impose barriers that result in longer lines at the polls or that reduce access to secure ballot drop boxes. There are hundreds of bills threatening to make voting more difficult in dozens of states nationwide. Okay, so I covered the Georgia voting rights bill last week in my podcast, so I'm not going to go and walk all the way through that thing again. Uh, if you want more information on that, uh, listen through one of my podcasts last week because I talked through a lot of it. Um, but a basic summary is this. Georgia passed legislation a couple of weeks ago changing some of its voting laws. Many people on the left view it as restrictive and especially harmful to uh, the voting rights of minorities specifically, whereas the right side of the aisle cheer it and kind of view it as 
steps that need to be taken in the right direction in order to be able to protect the efficacy and legitimacy of the voting that's actually going on in Georgia. And there are a lot of other states that have very similar measures that are in place right now being pushed primarily by Republican legislatures. So uh, now, because we are in the age of political activism, hundreds of companies have now come out against it. The MLB is just one company that has uh, and have vowed to protest this law by pulling spending and pulling jobs from Georgia specifically and vowing to do the same for any states that uh, choose to implement laws or have laws currently on the books that are not what they would see as beneficial for uh, voting rights and allowing for people to be able to vote as freely and easily as possible. As mentioned in the video that we just watched, uh, many of these companies got together in a joint statement to condemn the legislation last week and were cheering the MLB and their decision to pull the All-Star Game out of Atlanta, Georgia. So, a couple of things here. First, political activism by companies is a relatively new phenomenon, okay? And that's not to say that, you know, companies have not lobbied in the past because, of course, they have. And it's also not to say that companies historically have never waded into the fray of politics before because, of course, companies have made political statements in the past. However, this type of corporate activism is very, very new, and it's very recent. Uh, this type of a type of activism by corporations, even just two decades ago, um, by a ton of large multinational corporations getting together and condemning voting legislation by one state, was absolutely heard of, literally just 15 to 20 years ago. This was not a normal thing at all. And the reason why it's happening now is because culture says that it has to, okay? Popular culture is all about some activism, all about some political activism. You have to make your voice heard, okay? And many of these companies feel the need to do something because they're worried that if they do not, they will be on the receiving end of a firestorm on Twitter from the angry woke mob uh, that will you know, come out and condemn them for not speaking out because silence is violence, okay? Please hear me when I say, and I've said this on this podcast before, I'm gonna say it again probably a million more times. These companies do not care at all about your ability to go vote. They don't. They don't care at all. You want to know what these companies care for? They care for the profit. They care about their bottom line, okay? The only reason why Coca-Cola would ever care at all whether or not, you, you know, your voting rights were being impeded on is if they, you know, the government was forcing you to purchase a Coca-Cola. Then Coca-Cola, of course, would actually care about you, uh, what your voting lines would actually look like. Large corporations care about making lots of money because they are beholden to their share, poor, share all of their shareholders, and that's why you have a corporation, to make money, okay? Every bit of this is PR. It's all public relations. It is all marketing. All of them are trying to appear like a company with the, quote, correct values, okay, that the the larger popular culture and Twitter mob says that they should have, so you are more inclined to buy their products, it's just that simple. Uber comes out and says, those voting rights laws are absolutely terrible, right? But Lyft doesn't. And then all of a sudden you're like, you know what? I care very much about those voting rights laws. I'm going to go out and use an Uber instead of a Lyft tonight. That is their sole goal behind every bit of this, okay? Secondly, there's a ton of misinformation out there about the Georgia voting rights law that was just passed, okay? The state 
that they moved, the MLB moved their guest all-star game to is Colorado. Colorado has 15 days of early voting period and requires a federal or a state-issued ID in order to be able to vote. Georgia has a 17-day voting period under this new legislation and also requires an identification to vote. The voting laws between these two states are incredibly similar, okay? This is not about the voting laws. All right, if they were actually sitting down and parsing through the specific nuances of the legislation and what they liked and didn't like about it, that would be different. But they're giving a blanket statement because they want to capitalize on the moment that is at hand. Okay. Thirdly, and I'm just going to throw this out there, I may catch some heat for it in the future. Atlanta is a majority black city. Okay. It has a ton of black small owned businesses that rely on this type of tourism. And now, they will no longer get that. Just saying. All right? Something to consider here. So, honestly, I really do find a lot of this hilarious because people legitimately think <laughs> that a lot of these companies care. And my personal opinion is that it's actually just incredibly poor PR that these companies are actually doing right now. I think that if they were smart, and granted, I'm not, you know, a CEO at Coca-Cola, right? I'm not. Those guys are a lot smarter than I am. But I think that... If they were making the right moves, they would stay out of politics completely and just let the tide go out, okay? The last thing that you want or need as a company is to be pigeonholed into one specific market based upon political ideology, which changes with each passing day. You never know what the new political tides are going to bring in or what the political tides are going to be taking out, right? And now, a lot of these companies have hitched their wagon to the far-left ideology, and it's it's going to be changing. It's going to be gone. In three years, five years, 10 years from now, the tide is probably going to go back out. Cancel culture is going to go away completely. And the vast majority of these companies are going to be sitting around and everybody's going to be looking at them and they're going to be like, wait a second, what, you used to act like you cared all the time and now you don't? Maybe you actually don't care. Maybe you're just trying to sell us products, Pepsi, right? Maybe you didn't actually care about the voting rights of people in Georgia. It's all just a huge game, okay? And these companies are doing their best, their very best to try and make that extra cent over their competitors, right? And if they think they can do that by coming out and signing a letter saying that they condemn the Georgia voting laws, then that's what they're going to do because at the end of the day, trying to make a dollar. So with all of that having been said, that is the end of our second story of the day. Let's go ahead and hop on into our third story and last story, story number three. So, uh, somehow the idea of a vaccine passport has been thrown around that this is happening. All right. Within right wing circles and it has Republicans running for the Hills. Okay. Uh, the idea of a vaccine passport has been mentioned on fringes of the left. Uh, and basically what it would be is a means by which to identify people that have gotten the vaccine and keep track of people that have not uh, so that the government could then, you know, keep count of those people with or without a vaccine and then possibly place restrictions on things that people without a vaccine could do or places that they could go or, you know, yada, yada, all that fun stuff. So, uh, for some reason, the little paper slips that people have gotten after getting a vaccine, uh, you guys probably know what I'm talking about, but it's got the little D hex, you know, sign at the top or CDC sign at the top. And it's got like the date at which you got your first vaccine dose and the second date that you got your second vaccine dose. And, uh, you know, basically has your little signature at the bottom. And it's like, here I am. I can say that I got a vaccine. Somehow that little paper slip, uh, 
has turned into a vaccine passport magically somehow that has been misconstrued as uh, if you have that or if you don't have that, they're going to start keeping track of it in order to go eat in a restaurant. You're going to have to present your little laminated, you know, vaccine card in order to be able to eat there. Um, so the left, what does the left have to say about this? So Biden has come out multiple times and said that there are no plans for a vaccine passport. He's also said that he does not support them. Whether or not you trust Biden, totally up to you, right? You can only just take him at his word. Uh, he has also come out and said that there's no government database of people that they are keeping track of with or without the vaccine, uh, because that would be a violation, I believe of HIPAA requirements as well. Uh, there is a fringe of the left, I will say, that thinks this is a good idea as a means by which to eventually force people who are reticent to or don't want to get the vaccine to actually go out and get it. Uh, basically, the idea is if someone doesn't have the vaccine passport, they can't do what they want to do, can't travel, businesses, etc. Uh, and they claim, the left portion on the left claim that concerns about reaching herd immunity are not possible unless everybody goes out and actually gets their vaccines and the people that are refusing to get their vaccines are actually endangering the people around them. Uh, they liken it a lot of times I've heard uh, to forcing people to wear a seatbelt, right? The government forces you to wear a seatbelt because they're trying to protect you from dying uh, in, in the you know, basically they're restricting your freedom to not wear a seatbelt in order to keep traffic fatalities at a minimum, which I don't know if that's the best analogy, but it's one that I've heard on the left a lot. So the right, what does the right have to say? The right is wholeheartedly against it. I mean, like full-throated, this is the worst thing ever. Um, because they view it as a huge violation of freedom and privacy. Uh, it also should be noted here that the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, uh, which is in a, has become an extremely left-leaning organization, especially over the past couple of decades, is also against this. Uh, as they say, it would violate people violate people's rights to privacy and freedom of choice. Uh, so, interestingly enough, they're a pretty far left-leaning organization. Uh, they don't, they don't agree with it because they're all about civil liberties, as hence their name. So much of the right has been against the mask mandates and the shutdowns uh, because they've said that these limit Americans' freedoms and that it isn't up to the government to tell people whether or not, you know, what they can and can't wear or where they can and can't go. It should basically be up to the individual as to what restrictions they want to apply themselves or the companies as to what it is that they want to do, right? So if a restaurant owner wants to stay open with no restrictions at all, it should be totally up to them and then the people around or in that city should then make the decision as to whether or not that's a place that they want to go eat. So uh, what do I think about all this? I kind of tend to agree with the federal government not forcing things upon their citizens, I just do. And I know that may not be a popular opinion, especially amongst the left right now, but uh, I do not like large overbloated government telling people uh, that they have to shut down their businesses or that their business is not essential uh, and basically telling people where they can and can't go or what they have to can and can't wear. Uh, and it's not because, okay, uh, that I think that those things aren't good, right? I think that flattening the curve, uh, in a lot of ways, restrictions on businesses and, and businesses not opening up and allowing just a free flow of people to go and do whatever they want, I, I agree that those things in place did help to slow the spread of COVID at first, okay? I also wear my mask and fully acknowledge that wearing a mask is very important. However, that is a decision that I've made as an individual, okay? 
I uh, I think that those that people should be able to make those decisions for themselves. I, I realize and I acknowledge the fact that sometimes this can lead to incredibly difficult circumstances, especially in the face of the pandemic that we have seen over the past year. Because, unfortunately, there are just always going to be people that go out and make incredibly unintelligent decisions that could affect them and can also can affect the people around them. However, I do believe that there are far more devastating consequences to governments that have too much control over the population and can do and say pretty much whatever it is that they want without the say of the citizenry involved, okay? I am much more terrified of a government that gets into the hands of people that do not have the best interest of the citizens at heart, being able to tell those people what they can and can't do with their bodies, what, you know, with where they can go, what they can do, who they can talk to, whatever it may be. Um, because I, I don't I don't trust large governments to be able to make those decisions for people better than the people themselves actually being able to make those decisions. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I understand that obviously that's not uh, the, the opinion that has been held on the vast majority of the left side of the aisle for a long time. However, I think that individual rights to freedom and to privacy are of the utmost importance. And I also believe that, that is very, very clearly outlined in the Constitution as well. Um, so there's going to be some things I'll line up more on the left with, some things I'll line up a bit more on the right with, just like everybody. That's just kind of what I think. So uh, the end of the day, though, I think that we are getting to a place where uh, a lot of this stuff is starting to to go away. A lot of the restrictions are starting to be moved back. More people are getting vaccinated because they voluntarily want to go and get vaccinated. Hopefully, uh, the even with the colossal amount of misinformation that is out there around vaccines and around the need to be able to social distance and all that stuff, uh, there will not be so many people uh, in the United States that refuse to get a vaccine that we would not be able to reach herd immunity. I don't necessarily see that happening, um, so I don't see the need for, nor do I want a vaccine passport. Um, however, I also don't think the vast majority of the left wants or purports to want a vaccine passport either. It's dumb. So with all of that, that is the end of our third story and our last story of the day. Let's go ahead and hop on into our last segment, our segment on Wednesday called Bro What? So for this Bro What this week, um, and actually, I, I read through it and I found it um, in uh, when my reading through the vaccination passport thing. Oftentimes, when you get in uh, to specific uh, nuanced conversations, right, around stuff that uh, one side of the aisle is incredibly inflamed about, you normally, especially if it's one that's on the right, um, you're going to get great reactions from uh, good old Georgia Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene. And um, in reading through this, I actually found out that Marjorie Taylor Greene over this past week or so uh, came out wholeheartedly against, right, totally against vaccine passports, which are not currently present in America. Uh, and she said that any company requiring one for entry would be promoting, quote, corporate communism, <laughs> which... <laughs> makes no sense. <laughs> I like she I I have no I was literally speechless. I I don't know if she understands what communism is, right? Like I know that she talks about Maoism and Marxism and communism a, a lot. Like those are the big evil people that are always trying to do horrible things, right? But I don't think Marjorie Taylor Greene realizes that under communism 
It is the total seizure of all corporate, like anything corporate, right? All corporations, there's no, not really any businesses, right? It's just the government, right? <laughs> there is no such thing as corporate communism. Literally so stupid that it hurt my brain and I had to share that as my bro what. So with all of that, that is the end of our show today. Thank you so much for stopping by and for checking us out. As always, y'all, remember, we are going to do our best to stay level-headed. We are always going to be reasonable. And of course, we're going to split the difference. This is Austin Taylor.